Uh, oil and water. We know mix or don't mix. <laughs> Dumb question. Um, which one rises to the top after you shake them up? That less people know that. But uh, water's more dense, so the water always goes to the bottom, oil to the top. Um, and and you know that's always going to be. Uh, it'll never change. There's no amount of technology or uh, anything that's going to change that. It's a natural law that uh, God has instituted in his world, that they are not miscible. Miscible means that they won't, uh, two liquids won't uh, blend homogeneously together. Uh, the other thing, too, is injustice. You know, will injustice ever disappear from this world? And that's like asking the same question. If in, and I mean completely. Will injustice completely disappear from this world? It, it rises and then it descends in certain places. Um, in some places at times it gets incredibly uh, prevalent and in tyrannies and, and you know things like that where, where nations and people gain control and they rob people of their rights and their freedoms and so the Nazis in Germany and so on. Um, but even in the in fair nations, like, say, our own, which I, th- I still think we have a great amount of, of freedom and fairness, not as much as we used to, but injustice still is here, and we will it will always be. To remove it is like asking the water to rise to the top and stay there uh, between oil and water. So... Will injustice disappear? And in fact, it will, but not in this. Not until Christ returns. Not in this age. It won't. Uh, we will not. The church, no matter how involved, how mature, how uh, godly the church may become, which would be wonderful, uh, but it's not going to eradicate injustice. It's not designed to. There's only one that has ever been designed to do that. The Old Testament prophesies it, and the New Testament confirms it. That when Christ returns, everything's going to be turned upside down. And we could say the water will rise to the top. The justice will rise to the top. The injustice will go away. He'll remove it. So let's uh, we'll turn to 1 Thessalonians today, and we're going to... Uh, look at this in terms of the same passage we looked at on Sunday, but this time to focus on the return of our Lord and his reversal of things, uh, which is has a wonderful message to every one of us in, in several aspects. So let's open up in prayer. Let's first, before we get into it, be thankful and grateful for God's word. Let's be humble and reverent before God so that we may learn all that he has for us today through his word. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can discern your word through the Holy Spirit you have given us. We thank you that you love us. You have proven this through your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we as believers uh, continue in your word, we discover your love more and more. Uh, The fact that we'll look at today, Father, is that you are sending your Son back to, to take what is rightfully his. He has already earned it through the cross. He is the King. He is the victor. This is... uh, obvious and unchangeable by the fact that he sits at your right hand now and for eternity and holds that position of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, He will not exercise that uh, authority until he returns. We long for that day, Father, but until that time, we live according to the way of that kingdom, your kingdom, heaven. And... The promise is that when he comes, he will make things all over the world the way that we can see and love now and live now in the midst of a world that doesn't love it. And therefore, Father, we will face persecution. 
in opposition because the world does not understand nor love the truth and we are of the truth, your children. So, Father, we pray that your word would encourage us to live in a manner worthy that pleases you and to realize how important it is, to realize how exciting and wonderful and to realize that it's what we've been made for through Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So at Christ's return, he's going to reverse injustice to justice, ungodliness to godliness, unrighteousness to righteousness. As in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3, and two places there, the Thessalonians have suffered. And they are suffering, as Paul writes to them. They are suffering their own tribulation from their neighbors. And it is said by Paul that this is proof of the genuineness of their faith. The fact that they're being persecuted by the world and other religions are not is genuineness of their faith. And their steadfastness under it marks them out as worthy. He says that it is proof of the righteous judgment of God. And because of that, you walk worthy of the kingdom. And so we have to, first off, in those words, wonder, you know, can we make ourselves worthy of the kingdom? Is that, you know, by our suffering do we enter the kingdom? And that is not true. And we should all know that inherently by, well, at least by knowing that at base, you know, all believers understand that they're saved by Christ, that they enter the kingdom not by works, but by grace, by faith in Christ. And therefore, no, we don't suffer to enter the kingdom of God. But he does say that it reveals that you're worthy of it. And that uh, should be obvious to us as well, because the Lord's kingdom doesn't mesh, doesn't mix like oil and water with this world. It doesn't. Uh, the church has tried to do that, unfortunately. Throughout its history, it has tried to make uh, the truth in the Scripture more worldly in the hope that the world would accept it. And that is never going to work. Not to mention, you rob the word of all its power. When you change it, if you change it to make it more rational to the human mind, more reasonable to the human mind, really more palatable to a fleshly fallen human mind, uh, mixing it with philosophies right from the beginning uh, uh, in the third century, prominent Christian bishops were uh, merging the truth of the Bible with uh, the philosophy of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. And they were trying to, they were creating some conglomerate syncretism there that, yeah, it just robbed the truth of its power. And, uh, and we must not do that. We know that. But the world, we must understand, is never going to accept Christianity as it is. And therefore, it's going to be persecuted. In both places in the Thessalonian correspondence, there's two places where Paul is, both in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, where Paul is speaking of the second coming of Christ, he states this worthiness idea. And that is because, as I just stated, if if the truth is that if you live in a manner of the kingdom of Christ, you will suffer in the kingdom of the world. And that's, you know, if you don't compromise the truth, you're going to suffer in this world. You're going to suffer uh, in your own flesh because you're going to fight. Rather than give in to the flesh, you're going to fight the flesh. The flesh is going to want the things of the world the way that the world wants it. This is why the fallen man uh, <coughs> has meshed with the world. Because a fallen angel rules this world. And he has made it to, uh, created the world system by which the people in it will, you know, be away from God or walk away from God. Or, and actually be deceived into thinking that what they're doing is actually godly. You know, <coughs> I find it hilarious that people think that um, 
being, not being, how should I put it, that they consider free speech to be things that you shouldn't say. Uh, they consider, in our age, you know, the left and the, the progressive left the, has really championed uh, freedom and equality, or what they call equity, and it's nothing of the sort. And any thinking person could see that that's not actually fair. You know, making outcomes the way that you think they should come out is rigging the game. That's not fair. Uh, you know, fair is everybody gets the same rules and they run. That's that's a fair race, you know. But <clears throat> in, in our world, the truth, especially uh, now in in our nation, the truth has really been discredited. Um, and it's not it's not it's the worst that it's been in this nation. It's not the worst that it's ever been in the world. You know, our nation started off with great principles that allowed truth to flourish and the gospel to flourish in, in that environment. Uh, but uh, the truth has really taken a hit. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that this kingdom does not, the world's kingdom does not mesh with, meld with, like oil and water, with the truth, the real truth of the kingdom of God. So <clears throat> when you think of suffering making us worthy of the kingdom of God, some would take that to mean, well, I should go look for suffering or I should put suffering on myself, meaning asceticism. And this is where the, the monks, that monastic lifestyle, uh, people wearing hair shirts or beating themselves or you know, purposely putting pain in their lives or denying themselves of... Um, necessary needs and in saying, well, look, I'm suffering, so I'm worthy of the kingdom of God. If you're looking for suffering, which is asceticism, it really means that you're trying to promote yourself, which is the exact opposite of Christianity. You know, if we're not self-promoting. We don't look for the suffering. What we look for is in ourselves to purely, godly live. And we know that if you do that in this world that is ungodly and impure, then you're going to suffer for it. We leave it to God to allow however much suffering we receive. And that is the truth that we have to understand as well because then we'll start comparing ourselves with others and saying, well, why is he suffering or she suffering less than I am? So it seems and that God is unfair. That we accept from God whatever suffering comes in our lives and we know, as God promises, that he'll not give us anything more than we're able to bear, which is our life. So we don't go looking for suffering. So look at 1 Thessalonians 2.10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Now the we here is Paul and Silas, and Timothy. And there was probably some others with them, but they're the ones that are entitled on the letter. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this calling into his kingdom, this is the language of the second coming of Christ. Right? This, you know, it, it, it truly, we're members of the kingdom when we believe the gospel. But here in the context, and of course he's going to mention the return of Christ in chapter 4, and in chapter 5, by the way, the day of the Lord is in chapter 5, that... Uh, you know, that this coming or our calling into this kingdom is united with a manner of walking that is worthy. And this worthiness is, again, the fact that we know what we're of, that we know what is required of us. We know what kind of uh, new creature that God has made us to be. And so as that new creature as in that kingdom, as having our king, and knowing that when that king returns, 
What is he going to make of this world? Pure, righteous, godly, just, love, grace. And we, before that time, are called to live in the manner of the kingdom in a world that is another kingdom, which is going to cause us to suffer. And so you see, we have a, a, a huge calling on our lives, a great and, and an honor. It is an honor to be called to live in a manner worthy of the kingdom of God before it's even here. And as such, as Christ would say, you're the light of the world. And it's something else, really. But here, what we're fo- and we know this, but what we're focusing on here today is the fact that the Lord's coming, and when He comes. What we see here in this world is all going to be reversed. And that, we, and so we're tempted into the upside down world. Our flesh is upside down. We're upside down. There's there's nothing good about the flesh. We're born separate from God, and yet we're God's creatures. That's upside down. We're born in sin, yet God made us in his image. That's upside down. God made us in his image and we die. We end, we die. That is upside down. Christ is coming back to make that right side up. Uh, go to Second Thessalonians 1, 5, which we know. But again, in the same manner as what we just read in the first letter, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, your suffering and endurance, so that you will be considered, or say this is, really mean, as we've translated this, here is. Here is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Again, not to enter the kingdom of God, but because you live in a world that is not the kingdom of God. So we do not inherit the kingdom of God by suffering. Rather, we we suffer for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the sake of Christ. Pick up your cross and follow me, he said, and deny yourself daily. Lose your life. Why? For my sake. That's the old life, the life of this world. Lose it. Don't hold on to it. Let go of it. Be free. So this, the kingdom and its king are not the cause of our suffering. Like Christ wants me to suffer. You know, that's not actually true. He is for us, not against us. It's, we suffer because the king has made us to be members of the kingdom and have the life of the kingdom in a world that does, where the kingdom doesn't exist. We're behind, however you want to view it. We're behind enemy lines. We're in a bad kingdom. We're, uh, we're those beautiful gardens growing in a gray, lifeless, dead, ungodly world. And uh, it is the hatred of the king that is the cause of our suffering. And Jesus said this, night before he died, they hate me, they're going to hate you. So in the next line then, he says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Aha! So this affliction that comes because the right kingdom is living in the midst, or I should say the right kingdom members are living in the midst of the wrong kingdom, that this is going to be reversed. Notice those who afflict are going to be afflicted. That's a perfect reverse. And to give relief to you who are afflicted. That's a perfect reverse. In other words, I'll never be afflicted again. And then he says to us as well, because Paul and his had suffered. He said that in the first letter. And then he says when. Now when, when, when Christ apocalypses, uh, the Greek word which is to uncover. Or reveal when Christ is revealed, and that would speak of His second coming. But we're going to pause here at the when, and we're going to leave the bit of the second coming for tomorrow. What I want to focus on today 
is something about the promise of the second coming, which is this reversal. Uh, Paul makes the point in verses 6 and the first half of 7 is repayment. And that's what he says. He says repay. This Greek word is a word for vengeance. Uh, The word means to uh, deliver back. It's, it's the Greek word deliver, apodidomai, with a prefix anti. Right? So like in our language, anti means against or for, to give back. And this is anti-apodidomai. And this word means to give back payment or to give back delivery. So the delivery is coming back. It's a great little word. There is going to be repayment. This word can also mean vengeance. It's often translated revenge, which makes sense. If you're going to pay back, it's revenge. And by the way, who gets revenge? You all know this, but it bears repeating that vengeance is the Lord's, not mine. So this repayment of the afflictors and relief of the afflicted. And we don't just get relief. It's not like... Ah, all right, no more affliction. Now what? Well, there is a now what. And that's in verse 10. When the Lord returns, He is glorified in us and He is marveled at in us in verse 10. And so, not only are we given relief, but we're given this incredible experience of the glory and power in the face of God, Jesus Christ, in His kingdom forever. I can't imagine that. I long to see it. I long to see it now, but I'm not going to see it like we'll see it then. And we all will. And, you know, I'll leave that. You know, I always say I'll leave that, and then I think about it some more. Yeah, I, I truly think that there's, and it's a personal opinion, but what is not a personal opinion is the fact that there is reward and recompense in heaven for those who have done well. There's no other way to really put it. Is, but I don't know what the reward is. Right? There's crowns. Those are, are given. you know. But think about I walk around with a crown and somebody else doesn't. And, you know, this has been... Uh, this has been... Um, modified in various ways by teachers, teachers that I've heard who have made it seem like those who are without the crowns are running around in heaven all embarrassed and kind of downtrodden. And uh, that ain't heaven. (laughs) And the reason why I don't like any of that is because it's not in the Scripture. If the Scripture says there's going to be like, you know, bummed out people in heaven because they don't have any crowns, well, then fine. But it doesn't say that. But it does. It definitely speaks of reward, and I, you know, it makes me think. Well, let's say you do have a shiny, nice crown. Let's say you have one now. You'd, you'd look odd walking around in, in our world, but you know, let's say you, you possess something that everybody wanted, and it was yours. No, I guess say you're a billionaire in this world, right? And and you have billions. Now, billionaires are not counting their money. They have too much to count. They know they're always going to have more than they can spend. So why do they keep wanting more? And they do. And, you know, there's to having things, material things, the great allure of that is that it's how it makes you feel. It, you know, it leaves the area of security... You have enough to be secure. Of course you do. So it's not, a, you know, having whatever food you want, whatever things you want. That's long in the past if you're a billionaire. You know that you can have anything that you want. You can have 20 of anything you want. But it's the way that it makes you feel. And I wonder if in heaven there's a certain experience for those who have and say it here coming up, who those who have experienced the life of Christ now in time, 
And, uh, you know, what the reward for that, there is a reward for that. However, I guess I shouldn't give my opinion of it, but um, you, you should have your own, I would think. This, this living for him now has its eternal reward. And it can't be, it can't be all right, you know what, like the ascetics, I'm going to suffer now so I get a lot then. You know, that's not godly. It's just not. If, if what, that means that you're in this for yourself. You know, I'm going to live godly and I'm going to sacrifice and I'm going to give so I get a lot in heaven or a lot later on in time. Like those, like in some places where they say, you know, give the church a hundred dollars and you'll get a thousand, you know, tenfold. And, you know, imagine if that worked every time. The church would be fabulously wealthy. But then I guess we'd all run out of money eventually, you know, because they got to keep getting their thousands while we're getting our hundreds. I don't know. You know, eventually the whole monetary system is going to break down. But, you know, what, what is the true motivation there is self. And that's not it, as we'll see. So there is a reversal of fortune coming at the second coming. Jesus takes what is upside down and makes it right side up. A reversal of fortune at the second coming. When I picked out this picture, which is a, you know, a glass orb that when light shines through it, it will come through backwards. Um, it made me wonder. I wonder if God made mirrors. It's not the mirrors that reverse the light, but it's the property of light bouncing off a mirror that completely reverses the image. Because light is a wave, and it, because of that function, when it hits a mirror and bounces back at your eye, it's reversed. You know, God can make natural law any way he wants. I wonder if he did that on purpose. Because there's a lot in the Old Testament and New that speak of the small becoming the great. Tons of it. It's all over the place. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, where he starts the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, look at Matthew 5. And the first coming showed us this. Meaning the the birth of Christ into this world. Here's the Son of God walking around in Judea and in Galilee. He went to the coast at least once, the Mediterranean, uh, in Caesarea, and in um, Perea, another place kind of out east. And uh, not that that matters, but, you know, he's, as was prophesied, he would have no kind of appearance that we would look upon him. How does he enter Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey, on a foal of a donkey? In his first coming, he showed us that the least would be the greatest, but he didn't enforce it. In other words, he he could have come and enforced things as God, but he didn't. He will come and enforce things at the second coming. As God, he will. That's what we see here. Uh, while when the Lord Jesus is born into this world, Tiberius, who is Caesar, is sitting on the throne of the world in Rome. And Tiberius is worshipped as a king, uh, as a god, sorry. He's worshipped as a god. He, they force, the Romans uh, require all those under their uh, jurisdiction to worship Tiberius as a god. Uh, and... Yet here is the Almighty God as an infant in a manger in a faraway place in Bethlehem, but within the limits of the Roman Empire. The true king is going to have the eternal kingdom or going to give the eternal kingdom to whom? The poor, the meek, and those who are persecuted. He says it. Look at Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To whom is God going to give the kingdom? To the poor. Verse 5. Blessed are the gentle. That word also means meek. Blessed are the meek or blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. That would be the new earth. Verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
All right, so poor, meek, persecuted. Theirs is the earth. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, we should be poor and persecuted. Now, meek, yeah, meek means meek. But, you know, we can make ourselves poor financially. Right? Give everything away and go live on the streets. I guess we could persecute ourselves. We could make ourselves in pain and uh, hurt and afflict ourselves. But, you know, in that, if you did that and say, all right, let's, I'm going to make myself poor so I inherit the kingdom of God, then you're really after, not after what Christ, this is nothing, that has nothing to do with Christ. It has everything to do with you. So we must not assume that it's best to be poor. In fact, the amount of money that you have is inconsequential to this. If you were a millionaire and yet a follower of Christ and you renounce as a follower of Christ, and you should, we all will eventually. Christians get caught up in this, and that's why this is so important to understand what Christ is going to do when he returns. Is that we as Christians should renounce not money, but the worship of money. The root of all evil is the love of money, not money itself, the love of it. We renounce the worship of money. That's what's important. Hence, we are poor. Right? Where are our riches? We count our riches to be the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Not our riches are Christ. They're not what we possess. If God told us to give them away, we would give it away in a second. The followers of Christ renounce the worship of money. Christians are gracious givers. We give of ourselves, our money, our time, our work, our effort. We give and sow in the kingdom of God so that people's souls can be saved. We give for the gospel. We also give for the truth in the hope that other believers would be rich in good works and in love. Hebrews chapter 10. You see, so no matter how much we have, we will really care. But God's not saying give it away. You know, just give it away for the sake of giving it away. He's saying give it away when I call you to give it away. And if we want to play games with God and say, well, God, I never heard you tell me to give anything to anybody. He's going to probably say to you, well, you weren't listening. You plugged up your ears. You weren't listening to me. What you did was you worshipped your material and yourself and your security and you didn't give. You were too afraid to. And I showed you this and my, that my kingdom was gracious. And when I showed you and told you to be gracious, you weren't gracious. All of us are going to be called, are called to be gracious and to give. And when our eyes are open, we're going to see those. Actually, you know, we'll be looking for the opportunities to give. Not just waiting for open doors, looking for open doors. That is Christianity. That is the kingdom of God. So, they give. So, these who give, who are poor, or meek, and because they live for the kingdom of God, are persecuted. These are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. But the rulers of this world, those who have that, those positions, uh, meaning, and, and again, I should say, it's, you know, it's not just those who rule. If we have a position of authority that none of us should have, that doesn't mean that. If there was a person who had authority, say in Washington, who was a servant of God, he would be a great leader but he would also be the greatest servant. And how well do those people do in Washington? Especially now, in our age. They don't do well at all. They're, they themselves are persecuted because they're in the way of all the other people who are trying to get ahead because they worship themselves and they worship their wealth and they worship their power and they worship their influence. It's quite obvious so when Christ returns, what is going to happen to that system? The water is going to rise above the oil. 
And no one, look, and Christ is unapologetically going to do this. He's not going to be like, all right, everybody get ready. This is going to hurt a bit. Nope. Nope. He's coming with great power. So roles are reversed. In multiple examples of this throughout the scripture, God is going to reverse the sinful ideas of the world. Isaac is born to whom? Nonagenarians. Now, if you don't know what a nonagenarian is, neither, well, I used to not. <laughs> it's an octogenarian plus 10. Most people understand octogenarian. Nana is the prefix for 90. To two 90 year olds, 90 and 99, Isaac, the child of promise. Why is that? Why does God wait? The firstborn not taken. Isaac isn't the firstborn. Jacob's not the firstborn. And out of Joseph's two sons, Jacob picks Ephraim over Manasseh, who's the youngest. Uh, In a great passage in uh, Psalm 68, the mountains of Bashan, which are the biggest mountains in 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 Palestine, are jealous of Zion. When God, God picked a mountain, quote-unquote mountain, to build his temple, to build his city, is Moriah. Little. It's little. Uh, the water supply to Moriah. There's little tiny streams. There's, there's not a lot of water either. It's another point that God makes through the prophet Isaiah that it's not the Euphrates where God built his, his kingdom or his city on this huge flowing water supply, but on this small stream, basically. The Son of God is born in a manger. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, he's tempted by the devil, a creature. God allows himself to be tempted by a creature. Jesus puts on a a servant's apron and he washes the feet of his disciples. And it's there that he says, the least of you will be the greatest. He's turning it. And there, in that, in that uh, situation, he talks to the benefactors, those who are the leaders of the world, and that's how they run things. There's the leaders and there's a hierarchy. And he said, no, 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 not with you. With you, the least of you, the youngest, will be the greatest. Then God said, I didn't choose the wise, the strong, or the noble of the world. And it doesn't mean that God chose only stupid people. So welcome to the kingdom of God, dummy. No, it's not that. It's just that God, did God go to Harvard? Well, let's say, you know, like uh, uh, in, in the first century, did Christ go to the leading schools of Judea? Did he go to the Pharisees? Did he go to the Sanhedrin and look for disciples? Or did he go to this tiny little fishing village? He didn't pick the great of this world. Because there's a reason why the great of this world are great. Mostly, they do have to sell out. You can't stand up for the truth and be great in a world that doesn't love the truth. That's run by a fallen angel who hates the truth. You're not going to be great. There's, Yeah, there's a few exceptions, but they're very few. Very few. Mostly people got to sell out. And they do. There's that phrase, everybody has a price. But to a believer, there is no price. At least there shouldn't be. Now, we're told this result of Christ's return for a much bigger reason than that everything's going to be okay. You know, why are we told now so often, and we'll see tomorrow how frequent this is mentioned in in the New Testament and in the Old, but why are we told of the result of Christ's return It's a way bigger reason than to know that everything's going to be okay in the end. We, you and I, are constantly tempted by pride and by fleshly lust to go back to the old way, to go back to the world. We are constantly tempted to give in to the old world. And, you know, here's the old world. And even in 
you know, a conversation with someone or a situation at home with your husband or wife or with your, you know, with anybody, a neighbor, uh, any situation, just in your own thoughts. There is the desire to be first. I'm going to be first, I'm going to be best, I'm going to win. You know, in a friendly athletic competition, nothing wrong with that. But if this is what you want, I want to be first. Here is this constant temptation to us. To be first, to have the most, to have the biggest, to be the biggest, to be the smartest, to be the winner, to be the master. But this is the world. This world. That's not our world. Our world is Christ is the biggest. Christ is the best. Christ is my life. Everything good that I have, He's given to me. Christ is my King. I serve Him. And He makes me great. Will I be great? Oh yeah. Through Him, because of Him. According to the standards of the world? No. People have fallen for that. That Christ is going to make me great and then the whole world's going to recognize it. Say, bravo, you are really a great Christian. Uh, you have fallen. <laughs> you have fallen for the same lie. Christ himself wasn't great in this world. Christ is going to be great in this world by the act of his own power, not by general acceptance of the population. I mean, his second coming is bloody. He kills and kills all those who have risen up against him. Our world is goodness, truth, forgiveness, sacrifice, love, prayer, the gospel. Our world is Christ our King. And when he returns... He's going to make this world into the world I just described. So Christ is going to return. One of the things that Christ is going to reverse is the contempt of hatred. Uh, sorry, uh, contempt and hatred of the truth. Go to John 18. John 18. Verse 33. This is Jesus' conversation with Pilate. This, I love this passage. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? So the first thing, what Jesus is asking him here is do you really want to know this? Are you the king of the Jews? Do you really want to know that? The answer to that. Pilate answered, and he makes his motivation clear here, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? So, do you really want to know? Pilate's answer is, no, I don't. And what I really want to do is just get on with the business of my kingdom. Pilate is a not the ruler, but he's a high-ranking member of the old world, of the fallen world. And what Pilate wants to do is get on with this trial and have it over with. So he says, I'm not a Jew. I don't care if you're king or not or whatever you say that you are. I want to know what you've done so that we can move this along. So Pilate, no, he doesn't really want to know. And so Christ then says, magnificently, verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. He's not saying here that people should be fighting for him. He's just saying, look, if this were my kingdom, Pilate, you would know it. You would see my servants fighting for me. <clears throat> my kingdom, But as it is, he says, my kingdom is not of this realm. 
Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And uh, that's probably sarcastic. I would think it's very sarcastic. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now this question, what is truth, is a very stoic kind of thing. In other words, it's a very philosophical thing to say. and It's a way of saying there is no way that anybody could know the truth. You can't know it. It's not absolute. That's exactly what our world and the world has always believed. That there is no absolute truth. Pilar is a ruler. He is. He's in authority. But in the wrong kingdom. And so he doesn't believe in absolute truth. But for the kingdom of God, truth is a foundation of the kingdom of heaven while it's a punchline in this kingdom. And therefore, we, just like he says here, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And we have the truth in the scripture. So what the scripture says to us, we say is absolute truth. What is love? It's there. It's the only true love. Now, what is forgiveness? What is justice? These things are all defined in the Scripture. The things that are us. What is this world compared to the next? What is the second coming of Christ? The truth is a foundation of the kingdom of heaven. Our world... The truth, I mean, it's gotten to the point where people are saying, I can determine my own gender. Uh, This is the ultimate assault on the truth yet. And the ultimate assault on the authority of God. That you could actually choose your own gender. (laughs) And that you could actually be more than one gender. And it's basically a big, I don't say middle finger, but I said it. It, it, it's a big you know, revolt against God, who at the least made them male and female. And, uh, you know, the world says, hey, God, you don't even have authority over our genders. And it's amazing. You know, it's, it's the ultimate, and, and they call this freedom, when it is an absolute slavery to your own self-love, the ultimate idol. And, you know, however, we, we can rage about it. Yeah, I even, uh, we don't watch a little, a, a lot of um, uh, secular, most of our TV watching is without commercials. As, as I think a lot of people now with like Netflix and stuff like that, or Prime, you know, we don't really do commercials. But there's some shows that we like that show commercials. Or if I like throw on like golf on a Sunday or football, this is the worst. <laughs> I mean, I still really like the NFL. And if I put on a game on Sunday, I have to be very leery because I have a five-year-old watching the TV. She's like any kid. She's just uh, glued to any video. But, um, you know, in a commercial... These are just regular commercials that everybody's watching, and some of them are, I mean, they're close to X-rated, and it boggles my mind. Blatant homosexuality, we've seen a few of those. Blatant. Like, what? Like, like, again, I don't see a lot of it, so when I do and I see what what has happened to the trend, and this is just anti-God, openly. Has it always been this way? Yeah. But here in America, openly, has it always been this open? No. I mean, there was a time that on TV or even on the radio, there were certain words that you couldn't say, that it was against the rules to say them. That wasn't that long ago. It's amazing. Now, is that my message? No, it's not. My message is, That when the Lord returns, you can shake your fist at all of that. Call your TV station. Heck, if you want to, go for it. But if you lose your peace over it, 
If you think that you have to change this world, you ain't going to do it. And God, it was never God's plan for the church to change the world. It was God's plan for the church to save souls. And when the church got into world planning, they forgot that. When the church got into world planning, they forgot the coming of Christ and the literal millennial reign of Christ. This is true. Amillennialism, which is the fact that there really is no literal millennial, 1,000 literal years of Christ reigning on David's throne on earth, that was gone, or at least popularly uh, discredited in the 5th century And it was about that time that the church started to become its own kingdom. So the church said, look, if we can become a kingdom, why do we really need Christ to come back and be a kingdom? We can rule. And and in that, you know, we lose it. So, um, in a roundabout way, we, as believers, are not making a kingdom here on earth. We are of the kingdom that is coming. And therefore, when the kingdom comes and God's will is done, like we should be praying every day, then we we need to live. We have to. We have to live in the manner of that kingdom, which is what we started with today. Live in a manner worthy of the coming kingdom. All right, one last one. Go to Luke uh, Luke 16. And we see uh, this in this reversal in this um, account. Something gets a parable. It doesn't look like a parable. It looks like, uh, though it's, uh, you know, it is very unique. Luke sixteen nineteen. It's most likely a, a reality. And so the Lord, this is the uh, of Lazarus and the rich man. Now there was a rich man, verse 19, now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in the splendor in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling off the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now whether a person or even a believer, some don't think this is a real account, that it's a parable, either way, This situation is common. It was common then as it is now. And it's just what Jesus was getting at. There are those who are in this world that uh, um, idolizes materialism and personal uh, personal growth in terms of uh, making ourselves the biggest, the best, and the greatest. And there are others who are lose out because of that, and that's Lazarus. So in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Do you see it? Absolute reversal. Just like the second coming of Christ. The ones who rejected God, hated the gospel, and lived for themselves. And for those who, well, now we'll put Lazarus in this category as a believer who follows God. And as a result of his living, he's persecuted. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are you who are persecuted for my name's sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then he said in verse 26, and besides all this, between you, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. In other words, and this is a way of saying, you know, whether it's a real thing or not, and I think it is, by the way, but, you know, even if you don't, that there's no reversal, there's no re-reversal. 
So rich and poor, and again, it doesn't matter that Lazarus was physically poor, and I hope we can see that, that those who rejected God and persecuted the people of God, those who followed God and were persecuted, this is reversed in eternity, and there's a great chasm between the two. Can they get back? You know, can the rich man get over to the place and re-reverse his reversal? And the answer is no. This is after death, that's it. That's it. It's this life. When Christ comes, it's over. Like C.S. Lewis puts it perfectly in Mere Christianity. When the, when the author of the play comes out on stage, the play is over. Uh, and, that, and he said, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. Um, Wait, 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 wait. Besides all this, the great council of Jews come over here. To, yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have the Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even by someone who rises from the dead. And that is an astounding statement. But what, are the, what is Moses and the prophets stating? The gospel. This is the truth that the world has rejected. There is one truth that the life of mankind depends upon. One and that is that we're all born sinners, that we're all sinners, and that we all need deliverance by God. We all, this is the ultimate truth, is the gospel. And the gospel is that I am in dire need of salvation, and I can't save myself. That's the gospel. The gospel is that God sent the Son of God, and by grace and by love gave His Son for the salvation of the world. That's the gospel. And that is the truth. So we have to stand on the truth and let whatever persecution come and rejoice for yours is the kingdom of heaven. The roles are going to be reversed. If we fear the world, the threats of the world, the going without, the difficulty of what it will be. If we fear, if we compromise so that our time in this kingdom will be easier and we'll have more material, we're betraying our Lord, we're betraying our King, and we're betraying our birthright. The Thessalonians didn't do that. And that truly astounded the Apostle Paul. Hence he said, we boast about you, we brag about you to the other churches. Because they did not compromise, they did not concede, they didn't give in, they didn't fear. And so as Paul's conclusion at the end of chapter 1 is that we walk worthy of Christ and glorify his name. If we glorify his name, we are living for his kingdom. When Christ returns, everything's going to be reversed. You and I need to live in the reversal before it comes. You and I need to live. And so as materialism uh, uh, challenge or, or uh, tempts us, as materialism tempts us, as lust tempts us, as to be the biggest, the, be the best, the greatest, the smartest, uh, tempts us, as pride tempts us, we have to say, look, that's not the kingdom. That kingdom is coming. I need to live in the reversal before the reversal comes here. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is a guarantee. As we will also see, Father, as you teach constantly that his return is imminent. And hence, we believe in the rapture. And so, Father, we know that it could happen at any time. 
So we are careful, watchful, alert to live in the reversal that you will enact soon enough. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.